0: If you're tired of these promos, supporters get the podcast early and ad-free. Just go to donate.bogosity.tv for the links to sign up. Welcome to the Bogosity Podcast for the week of January 21, 2024. The podcast that pulls 9 G's. This is your host, Shane Killian let's fluoridate the news of the bogus. Have you ever wondered about conspiracies to rig the presidential election? Have you ever wondered if the deep state is an actual thing? How would you react if a bunch of them came right out and admitted that all of that is exactly who they are and what they're doing? That's apparently what a group of public interest groups and lawmakers did, according to NBC News, who tweet A network of public interest groups and lawmakers Nervous about former President Trump's potential return to power, is quietly devising plans to FOIL any effort on his part to PRESSURE the U.S. military to carry out his political agenda." Interesting phraseology, since the President is the Commander-in-Chief and doesn't have to PRESSURE the military to do anything. He just orders them. They reported, "...Trump has raised fresh questions about his intentions if he regains power by putting forward a legal theory that a president would be free to do nearly anything with impunity, including assassinate political rivals, so long as Congress can't muster the votes to impeach him and throw him out of office. Yeah, they went there. You may recognize the assassinate political rivals thing as a desperate argument the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals came up with to deny the concept of presidential immunity, which says that a president cannot be indicted for his official acts without first being impeached and convicted by Congress, as the clear language of the Constitution says. Quote, Now, bracing for Trump's potential return, a loose-knit group of public interest groups and lawmakers is quietly devising plans to try to foil any efforts to expand presidential power, which could include pressuring the military to cater to his political needs. What they're describing is called a coup d'etat. The action is spearheaded by the nonpartisan... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Couldn't hold a straight face there. Georgetown Law Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection. Yeah, nonpartisan. Anyway, their executive director, Mary McCord, said, quote, We're already starting to put together a team to think through the most damaging types of things that he might do so that we're ready to bring lawsuits if we have to. Sky Perryman, president of Democracy Forward, said, quote, We are preparing for litigation and preparing to use every tool in the toolbox that our democracy provides to provide the American people an ability to fight back. Yeah, toolbox. Toolbox. Remember that we covered back when Trump was president how, several times, members of the military outright lied to Trump to stop him from doing things they didn't want him to do, or to make him do things they wanted him to do. For example, when Trump gave the order for all of the military who wasn't directly protecting the oil to pull out of Syria, they told him there were only 600 or so troops left, when in reality there were thousands. An official total has never been given. NBC reports, Among the least understood tools available to a president is the Insurrection Act. Vaguely worded, it gives a president considerable discretion in deciding what constitutes an uprising and when it is okay to deploy active duty military in response, experts say. Some lawmakers on Capitol Hill worry that Trump might invoke the act to involve the armed forces in the face of domestic protests or if the midterm elections don't go his way. Yeah. One memory-hold event from the Summer of Love occurred on May 29, 2020, when Trump had to be rushed to the White House's secure bunker when BLM protesters broke down a police barricade and fought with police. And these weren't the friggin' bicycle racks they were using on Jan 6th! These were some hefty barricades! But instead of being held in solitary for two years before getting a trial facing decades in prison like the Jan 6 protesters, these protesters were merely detained temporarily. More to the point, after all that, Trump chose not to use the Insurrection Act to prosecute them. So given all that, how much evidence do these bozos have to back up their fears? None. At. All. Senator Idiot Blumenthal said, quote, There are an array of horrors that could result from Donald Trump's unrestricted use of the Insurrection Act. A malignantly motivated president could use it in a vast variety of dictatorial ways unless at some point the military itself resisted what they deemed to be an unlawful order. But that places a very heavy burden on the military. You ever wanted the proof that the Deep State exists? Because what they're describing is the Deep State. NBC reported. Trump's vow to seek retribution on behalf of those he says have been wronged and betrayed has sparked fears that he would use presidential powers more broadly as a cudgel against political foes. Oh, you mean like Biden is doing now, and exactly what your article is describing, by a bunch of people who feel wronged and betrayed? William Cohen, former senator and former defense secretary for Bill Clinton, said, quote, He's a clear and present danger to our democracy. Yeah, how telling. Their democracy. The one they run in the background. When they say our, they're not including you. This isn't yours. It's theirs. And if you do something with your vote that they don't like, this is what they're going to do. And yes, what all of this amounts to is a literal insurrection. A military coup. DRACONIAN RULE BY THE UNELECTED. He also said, quote, We're about 30 seconds away from the Armageddon clock when it comes to democracy. I think that's how close we're coming to it when you have a presidential candidate who can be indicted on 91 counts, who can be found liable for sexual aggression, who we have seen lies pathologically, who has flouted every single rule in the book. Uh, should this guy be on some sort of medication? In saying how Trump could abuse his power, Adam Smith, top Democrat on the House Armed Services Committee said, quote, Whatever your guess is, open up your imagination a little more. Yeah, imagine it. Because that's all they have. Imagination. Or should I say, delusion. They do quote Mark Milley, but we know how little to take him seriously, so I won't bother. But there's all the bloviating about how Trump just refused to give up the presidency and give a peaceful transfer of power. Well, how I remember it, he left. He didn't barricade himself in the White House. He didn't use the military to stop Joe Biden from getting in. He just packed up and left. His behavior goes way against what their are fearmongering he'll do. Someone else who should have zero credibility with listeners of this podcast, John Bolton, said, quote, A second Trump term would be day after day of constitutional crisis, the Justice Department one day, the Pentagon the next, and Homeland Security the next. It would be unremitting. But again, it's puzzling, because although that actually wasn't the case in Trump's presidency, certainly after Bolton left, it's pretty much been the case under Biden. What's that bit about accusing your enemy of what you yourself are doing? Bolton rounded off his comments with, quote, You need to mobilize people for the fight ahead and not say it's over. Yeah, like I've been saying, how are you protecting the Constitution by undermining the civil control of the military? And hey, remember Leon Panetta? He said, quote, Like any good dictator, he's going to try to use the military to basically perform his will. Said the guy under Barack Obama, who did things like pass his jobs program as executive orders when he couldn't get it through Congress, or execute American citizens through drone strike without a trial. I'm not saying that Trump will be good by any stretch of the imagination, but it's an even greater stretch to think he'll be as bad as they're making him out to be but apparently the news media has become such a joke that NBC doesn't even realize what they just admitted to and which particular cat they let out of the bag. If you're looking for a way to support this channel, but you don't have any spare cash and you can't stand ads, you can do so by generating your own cryptocurrency. Use the links at the bottom of the description to follow the link to odyssey.com to listen to the podcast and see all of my YouTube videos as well. Just watching videos will produce cryptocurrency for the creator and yourself. And since Odyssey is always monetized and never censored, you'll have no problem seeing all the videos from your favorite creators. You can also use the library credits you created Odyssey to tip creators and even purchase paid content. Earn library credits through various rewards, including daily view rewards and the number of shares and invites. And you can interact with creators in all sorts of ways, including like and dislike, comment, boost a post by supporting it, repost it, and share to other sites, all while earning crypto for the creator. Easily monetize yourself and your favorite creators using cryptocurrency, without advertising. Use the link below to visit this channel on com and see many of your other favorites there as well. So this week, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in one of the cases we've been following, Loper v. Raimondo, a case about the Chevron Doctrine, where Congress passes incredibly ambiguous laws that SHOULD be void for vagueness, but the courts, instead of voiding the laws or siding with citizens leave interpretation of these laws to what are styled as highly trained experts ready to interpret the law who are really bureaucrats who are unelected, unappointed, and completely unaccountable. Separately, they heard arguments in a similar case, Relentless Incorporated v. Department of Commerce. John Vecchioni of the New Civil Liberties Alliance, for the Plaintiffs in Relentless, said that the Chevron Doctrine, quote, "...incentivizes Congress not to clearly state what they're doing in a statute. They put in the main points, and then they assume that whatever the administration does, if they like it, they can take credit. If they don't like it, they can say, ah, we never knew that was going to happen. David Doniger, Senior Strategic Director for the Natural Resources Defense Council's Climate and Clean Energy Program, so you know about how seriously to take him, said, quote, This is a campaign to weaken government's ability to protect you from these kinds of modern dangers, whether they're to your health through unsafe air or water, or through unsafe drugs or food, or whether it's your financial security. Those protections require a government with some capacity to effectively respond, and this case is about destroying that capability. I mean, sounds good to me! Put the barf bag on standby while I read the comments of Andrew Mergen faculty director of Harvard Law School's Emmett Environmental Law and Policy Clinic, who said, quote, What the doctrine recognizes is that within the government there are hard-working people who have developed an expertise on whether food is safe, on how you limit pollution from power plants, on how you ensure that our airplanes and automobiles are safe. The doctrine promotes a regime where experts do the gap-filling and the alternative proposed by the alternative to Chevron is to have judges fill that gap. A judge who is not trained as a pilot, I do not want flying my airplane. Judges don't need to be experts. I mean, it'd be nice if they weren't complete idiots, but as far as expertise on the matter, well, that's what expert testimony is for. Fundamentally, the executive branch should not be doing judicial functions, and that's really what these cases are about. Paul Clement, lead counsel for the Loper plaintiffs, said, quote, The question is less whether this court should overrule Chevron, and more whether it should let lower courts and citizens in on the news. The reality is that Chevron has already proven itself unworkable, and its corrosive effects on our separation of powers have lingered long enough the government's pleas to retain this misguided and reliance-destroying doctrine fall far short of the mark. According to reports, the word ambiguity was spoken at least 50
1: times during arguments, especially
0: when Gorsuch mentioned
1: this ambiguous ambiguity trigger that nobody knows what it means.
0: Ambiguity is not something that's supposed to exist under the law, but Chevron, instead of removing ambiguity, just increased it. In fact, Clement brought up that very point. I would think
2: that the uniquely 21st century phenomenon of cryptocurrency would have been addressed by Congress and I certainly would have thought that would have been true in the wake of the FTX debacle. But it hasn't happened. Why hasn't happened? Because there's an agency head out there that thinks that he already has the authority to address this uniquely 21st century problem with a couple of statutes passed in the 1930s. And he's going to wave his wand and he's going to say the words investment contract are ambiguous. And that's going to suck all of this into my regulatory ambit, even though that same person when he was a professor said this is probably a job for the CFTC.
0: More than that, it resulted in the way ambiguities are resolved, changing depending on which administration is in power, like the cryptocurrency cases we've been covering. Before Biden, they clearly weren't securities under the Howey test. Now, the Howey test has been butchered and even ignored to call them securities, and to shut down crypto companies for not registering their securities, even though there's literally no way for them to do so. A lot of the arguments centered around the Brand X case, where the Chevron doctrine was used to regulate DSL services as a different kind of service from cable internet services, subjecting DSL providers like Brand X to tougher regulations than their competition. So really, you have two services that are in every practical sense identical, regulated two different ways because the FCC said so. And that was far from the only one. As Clement argued,
2: I love the Brand X case because broadband regulation provides a perfect example of the flip-flop that can happen. But it's not my only example. There are Micus briefs that talk about the National Labor Relations Board flip-flopping on everything. Ask the Little Sisters about stability and reliance interests as their fate changes from administration to administration.
1: It is a disaster. And as Gorsuch explained in Relentless, The cases I saw routinely on the courts of appeals, and I think this is what niggles at so many of the lower court judges, are the immigrant, the veteran seeking his benefits, the social security disability applicant, who have no power to influence agencies, who will never capture them, and whose interests are not the sorts of things on which people vote, generally speaking. And there, Chevron is almost always, and in fact, I, I didn't see a case cited, and perhaps I missed one, Well, Chevron wound up benefiting those kinds of peoples. And it seems to me that it's arguable, and certainly the other side makes this argument powerfully, that Chevron has this disparate impact on different classes of persons.
0: And I think Gorsuch handily knocked down General Elizabeth Prelonger's argument. And the alternative to each of these, Justice Gorsuch, is to have the courts do it
2: through piecemeal litigation. At the very least, I think that it's easy to see why Congress might think that that is Not as good of an alternative in a circumstance where the court's pronouncements could come out of nowhere with respect to a particular party. Now we have an amicus brief from the small business.
1: Except for everybody gets to litigate their case. Everybody.
0: And that really puts the lie to Doniger's statement where he said, quote, The real purpose of it is to enfeeble the federal government so that we don't have the capacity to deal with modern problems and the billionaires and big companies can just do what they want and not be checked. But of course, Chevron means that it's the big cronies of whatever administration is in power that can do what they want. Ending Chevron can only make it more equitable. Clement said that he, quote, Can't think of a better way to mark the 40th anniversary of the Chevron decision than with an overruling. In our view, this has really gotten out of control. Jackson, Kagan, and Sotomayor clearly want these enshrined experts to maintain their power of being legislatures and judges at the whim of the current administration. Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh have all expressed skepticism of Chevron. All they need is either Roberts or Barrett to join them. Roberts may be willing to join, since he doesn't think doing so will be as disruptive as Prelogar was making it out to be. Barrett I couldn't get a read on. I mean, the press is freaking out, but everyone else should be hopeful. Ending this doctrine will save a lot of people and small businesses from being bullied at the whims of the current administration and their unelected bureaucrats. Hey, now for some advocacy of right to repair from a surprising source, Google. They just released a white paper advocating it. It's telling that, given the fact that right to repair has increasing bipartisan support and overwhelming support among consumers, companies like Apple and John Deere have been acting against your right to do what you want with whatever you buy, from phones to farm equipment. Google, on the other hand, wrote... We want our devices to be used and valued for as long as possible in order to drive customer savings and reduce e-waste over time. First, longevity is fundamental to building more sustainable and circular business models to minimize our environmental impact. Secondly, Google and our customers benefit most when our devices are durable and remain useful for as long as possible. We care that our devices continue to deliver the best of Google through delightful, personalized experiences for many years to come. They mentioned that their policy for the new Pixel 8 line is for OS, security, and feature updates to continue for seven years after release, the longest commitment of any major smartphone manufacturer. I mean, I can still update Linux on my 20-year-old computer I use as a file server, but at least it's a start. Quote, Google believes that users should have more control over repair, including access to the same documentation, parts, and tools that OEM repair channels have, which is often referred to as right-to-repair. We strongly support initiatives that provide users with greater choice over the repair of their devices, that protect user safety and privacy, and that provide manufacturers with flexibility to drive innovation and meet users' evolving needs. That's good. I would prefer that they had said complete choice instead of greater choice, but I guess one step at a time. Mostly it's a sales brochure talking about their commitment to sustainability and the environment, blah, blah, blah. But considering the outright misinformation and even fear-mongering we've seen from companies like Apple and John Deere, I'll take it. One bit of fear-mongering is that improper repairs can be dangerous, and so we can't have Right to Repair because only Apple can properly repair a MacBook. At a premium, of course. But Google rightly points out that this is a reason to support Right to Repair since potentially dangerous components like lithium-ion batteries can be provided to independent repair facilities just as they are to OEMs, instead of having to take the risk of potentially using substandard or improperly refurbished parts. They also mention the security concern of handing a device with all your personal information over to a third party, but point out that there are ways, such as Android's repair mode, to lock your private information while it's in the hands of the repairman. It's not all good. Right to repair is based on property rights. The idea that what you buy is yours, and you can do whatever you want to with it, which also means you can contract with a third party to do so as well. But Google talks about policies that create regulations based on different device categories, and say, quote, By taking a careful approach, OEMs and policymakers can avoid potential trade-offs or unintended outcomes, and meet users' evolving needs and expectations. It's really the kind of mentality that treats us like children. We don't get to take risks for ourselves, and government should protect us from ourselves if we want to do something they feel is too dangerous. I mean, they even use the phrase, well-intentioned regulations. Might as well talk about invisible pink elephants. And, ultimately, it's never good when companies try to steer the direction of regulations. This is pretty much the mantra of Right to Repair. Just shut up and sell the parts! But there's the good, too, such as opposing anti-repair practices, quote, For example, parts pairing, the practice of using software barriers to obstruct consumers and independent repair shops from replacing components or other restrictive impediments to repair, should be discouraged. At best, a major manufacturer is getting behind Right to Repair. At worst, they're trying to use it to gain support and credibility, which means they're at least recognizing the demand for it. But given they're supporting the new Right to Repair legislation in Oregon, it may be more the former than the latter. Hopefully the good will outweigh the bad, and in the process we can show to manufacturers that allowing us to repair or modify our own devices as we wish is ultimately good for business. But even if it isn't, it's our right to do whatever we want with items we purchase. And that we shouldn't compromise on. Do you have children? Or nieces or nephews? Are you homeschooling? Or just want to counter some of the socialist indoctrination most children get in school? If so, go to bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins, and you'll be taken to a website where you can get some great books for elementary-aged children. The Tuttle Twins books are books about liberty and free-market economics that include children's versions of Bastiat's The Law, Leonard Reed's Eye Pencil, and Hayek's The Road to Serfdom, as well as books about the Federal Reserve and how regulations protect business cronies. They'll learn about the harm caused by eminent domain, or regulations passed in the name of safety, and fundamental concepts of liberty. And as you can see from the sample pages on the website, they're all easy to read and nicely illustrated. They're just $9.99 apiece, or get a special discount as well as free bonuses when you purchase all five. You can even buy in bulk, to donate to schools and local libraries. So get the Tuttle Twins books at bogosity.tv slash tuttletwins. And now it's time to acculturate this week's Biggest Bug emitter. Way back during COVID, as government pushed vaccine mandates, a certain podcast host warned you that this would lead to a resurgence in anti-vaccination forces. This week's story is about Jeanette Breen, a midwife who falsified the vaccine records of 1,500 school-aged children throughout New York State. Breen, who operated Baldwin Midwifery, lied to parents and children and gave them homeopathic pills instead of vaccines, and then falsified their immunization records to the tune of 12,449 fake immunizations all total. These were supposed to be regular childhood vaccines and didn't include the COVID vaccine and date back prior to COVID. The vaccines included Tdap, Hep B, MMR, polio, varicella, menaque, and high B. See way back in the archives for fatal consequences to children and infants that the anti-vaccination movement has caused. Dr. James McDonald, New York's health commissioner, said, quote, "...misrepresenting or falsifying vaccine records puts lives in jeopardy and undermines the system that exists to protect public health." Let it be clear, the New York State Department of Health takes this issue seriously and will investigate and use all enforcement tools at its disposal against those who have been found to have committed such violations. State Education Commissioner Betty A. Rosa said, By intentionally falsifying immunization records for students, this licensed healthcare professional not only endangered the health and safety of our school communities, but also undermined public trust. We are pleased to have worked with our partners in government to bring this wrongdoer to justice. We remain committed to upholding the highest standards of health and well-being within our educational institutions. The pills she gave them were from the Real Immunity Homeoprophylaxis Program, which, to be fair, truthfully says that, unlike vaccines, their product has no adverse effects. Of course, their product doesn't have any effects because there aren't any active ingredients. They're just sugar pills. Back when the COVID vaccine came out, I made a video covering its ingredients. It was easy to find. I had to really dig to find anything on this. The program isn't online anywhere, and you can only find indirect references to it on homeopathic websites, which is a pretty serious indication that they know full well it's a scam. I couldn't even find what, exactly, the active ingredients were supposed to be. Not that it really matters, homeopathy dilutes the ingredient way past Avogadro's number, meaning that you won't even get a single molecule of whatever the active ingredient is supposed to be. It would be bad enough if the midwife had misled the parents into thinking this was just as good as a vaccine, but she outright lied to them and told them their kids were getting vaccinated! Green was fined $300,000, prohibited from administering any more vaccines, and excluded from accessing the New York State Immunization Information System. The state is now having to track down the children and inform their parents, as well as the approximately 300 schools they attend. What I couldn't find is how much money she took from the parents. Guaranteed, those homeopathic nothings didn't cost her as much as the actual vaccines would've. They should all sue her. Each and every one for what she charged them, for child endangerment, and anything else they can think of. So, all of that makes Jeanette Breen this week's biggest Bogun emitter. Go to Firmoo. That's F I R M O O dot Bogosity dot tv. Anytime you need quality glasses at a low price. Once again, that's Firmoo dot Bogosity dot tv. And now let's verticillate this week's. Idiot Extraordinary. Idiot. Extraordinary. And this week, it's Justin Humphrey, a member of the Oklahoma House of Representatives, who introduced a bill basically kicking furries out of Oklahoma schools. Now, I get there are probably dress code violations, and maybe their behavior can be disruptive, but there are already rules in place to take care of that. But no, this guy decided to introduce House Bill 3084, which says, quote, "...students who purport to be an imaginary animal or animal species or who engage in anthropomorphic behavior commonly referred to as furries at school, shall not be allowed to participate in school curriculum or activities. So they can't participate at all, no matter how properly dressed or well behaved they are. By the way, what would this do to school mascots? What about Halloween costumes? And what actually counts? Do you kick out a girl wearing neko ears? And check this part out, quote, The parent or guardian of a student in violation of this section shall pick the student up from the school, or Animal Control Services shall be contacted to remove the student." You know, when they were saying people should be treated the way they identify, I don't think this is what they had in mind. Seriously, if I weren't actually looking at this bill on the actual website of the Oklahoma State House, I'd think it was the Babylon Bee! He mentioned the problem of kids at school using litter boxes, which has been widely reported to be a hoax, but even if it weren't, that would still be a violation of existing rules. You wouldn't need a new one for that, and you wouldn't need one banning all furries whether they do it or not. Humphrey said, quote, If you've got an animal coming to school, how about we vaccinate them? How about we get them neutered? How about we send them to the pound? Ugh. Okay. First of all, we already vaccinate them, see the previous story. As for the rest of it, I think this guy has more mental issues than the furries do. I see that Humphrey used to be an administrator of drug court. Maybe he was hitting up the evidence logger too much. Although I also see that he's a cattle rancher. Maybe he's been kicked in the head by one too many cows. Really, if nothing else, I hate this guy just for making me defend furries. So all of that makes Justin Humphrey this week's... Idiots. Idiots. Next, next, next Well, that wraps up this You're Not Gonna Make the World Any Better By Shouting At It edition of the Bogosity Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please go to donate.bogosity.tv for several ways to support and discord.bogosity.tv to join the discussion. Subscribe at Patreon or Subscribestar and you can listen early and ad-free. Thank you for listening. Until next time, here's a quote from Milton Friedman. I think the government solution to a problem is usually as bad as the problem and very often makes the problem worse. The Bogosity Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution on Commercial Low Derivatives 4.0 International License. Bogosity.